Amen. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 9. We're going to continue our series of messages this morning following Jesus in the meals that he ate with people in the book of Luke. This week, uh, Eli was out of school for fall break, and so we decided as a family that we would take a, a, a mini vacation. We would take a couple of days and we would um, just get away and spend some time together as a family. And we decided to go to, to um, Sevierville, Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg, that whole area. They have an indoor water park up there. And uh, we, we went and stayed at the indoor water park at Wilderness at the Smokies and uh, spent Tuesday at the indoor water park and spent Thursday there. But Wednesday... We decided it would kind of be our, our day when we wouldn't be at the water park, but we would go and, and, and uh, do a couple of things around that area. And the, the things that I was most concerned with, I mean, the boys wanted to go. There's this upside-down house there they wanted to go to. and uh, There's the aquarium that's world-famous there that they wanted to go to. I was more concerned about where we could get a couple of good meals. All right? And so we decided to eat breakfast at the original Pancake Pantry up there, which, let me just give you this bit of knowledge. If you ever think you can escape from here, you can't. We were eating at Pancake Pantry, and seated two tables away from us was Randall Hall and his family. And I said, Susan, we're getting away. Isn't it great? To-? Oh, there's Randall. Well, wow. <laughs> guess we're not away after all. So we ate Pancake Pantry, but then that night, we went to one of my all-time favorite places to eat. It's right there near the water park. It's in Sevierville. It's called the Apple Barn. Anybody ever been to the Apple Barn? Let me see. Yeah. It had been a long time since I'd been to the Apple Barn. I just hadn't been up in that area very much, and I forgot about the apple fritters. Can I get an amen on the apple fritters? I mean... They bring those things out, and they don't just bring the apple fritters. They bring it with apple butter, possibly the greatest creation in the history of mankind, right? I mean, you've got apples and butter. I mean, it's had to be developed in the South because that's the kind of thing we do. And we sat down, and it wasn't just the apple fritters. They bring this little apple drink, and you get there, and I got... Uh, I had one of those meals where, you know, you've been to a Italian place like the, the Tour of Italy, where, the, you know, they give you five or six. There. Well, there they just got the sampler platter. And I just got the chicken sampler platter. And so you get this meal, and it was one of those meals that when you get done, you think, man, that was good. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Not One of those where you just are satisfied and at the moment, there are no regrets, you know, maybe later or two or three days, but just that satisfied feeling of a great meal. We're entering into the time of year when we schedule several of those, right? We're not very far, a little over a month away from Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's one of those days, and if you're like me and you've got two or three families you've got to get to, you have to make your way through two or three Thanksgiving meals. It's requirement. And then we, we go to Christmas where we have Christmas parties and all of that, and part of that goal is to eat. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about Jesus sitting down with people and not just sharing a physical meal that's satisfying, but also 
giving them some words that can be satisfying to their souls. And as we've talked about for the last couple of weeks, the, the kind of verse that, that is um, in the background as we've talked about all this is that this was part of Jesus' mission and the way that He did it. This was part of the way He implemented His mission in the world. And, and there's this verse that we've been reading each week and it comes from the book of Luke. And it comes from Luke 7, which is the passage we talked about last week. And it says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In the beginning of His ministry, the thing that Jesus got um, chastised the most for, criticized the most for, was the fact that He liked to eat. This is, by the way, why Jesus, I believe, was a Baptist. Because He loved a good meal with friends, alright? I'm joking there because... Jesus was Jesus, and we're just trying to follow Him, whoever we are. But it is true that He came eating and drinking. And so we've been looking each week at what do those lessons have to do with us. And today we're going to look at kind of a passage that most of you are familiar with. Most of you have, uh, have read, have known, have talked about. And it's in the book of Luke. Did I tell you Luke or did I tell you Matthew? See, that's what happens when your Bible gets marked in the wrong place. So turn to Luke. From now on, if I tell you over the next three weeks anything other than Luke, just say you're wrong. All right? We're in Luke chapter 9. And we're going to look at a story that's familiar to most of you. In fact, it's the only story that is told in all four Gospels. It's the only ministry element of Jesus during His time on earth that's told in all four Gospels. It's the only miracle that's told in all four Gospels. Now, of course, when you get to the end of His life, the crucifixion is there, the resurrection is there. But as far as the ministry of Jesus, this event, this miracle, is told in all four Gospels. And it's an amazing miracle, but what I think we miss sometimes, because we pull it out of its context in the book of Luke, is that Luke intends this miracle to teach us something very important about who Jesus is. And the way that we're going to understand that today is we're going to read the verses before it and after it and ask ourselves the question, what is He answering in this miracle? Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 7. And Herod, tell me real quick, Herod, good guy, bad guy, what's going on here? Bad guy, alright? Herod the Tetrarch, this is interesting. Everyone else gives him a kingly title. Everyone else gives him this this uh, this. A royal title. And Luke says, no, it's just Herod. It's this kind of guy that only has authority because other people say he can. He's not really royalty. Heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed. Because some said that John had been raised from the dead. Some that Elijah had appeared. And others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. Verse 9, he says, I beheaded John. Remember that story? There's a banquet here. throws a big banquet. And he says, whatever you want, I'll give you. And birthday gift to one of the women in his life. And she says, well, I, I, it, I, I want to know something a little different. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so he obliges. I, I beheaded John here. It said, but who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. Now, 
who is he obviously asking a question about here? Jesus, right? He says, listen, I, I killed the prophet that everybody was following. I, I got rid of John. I, I had a problem with the prophet who was saying things that he didn't need to be saying, that was causing problems for my ruling, that was causing problems for the people. I got rid of him. Who is this I keep hearing stuff about? I mean, I mean some people are saying he's John. That can't happen. I mean, I saw him. I beheaded him. Some people say he's Elijah. Well, I mean, I know that the Jews, I know that our people believe that, that, that Elijah was, was taken away in a chariot and that he'll come back again in some form. Some of the older prophets, all I want to know is who is this man? Skip verses 10 through 17. Look at verse 18. While he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Does this sound familiar? Elijah. One of the ancient prophets has come back. You see what Luke has done here? He's taken Herod's question and he's put it, Jesus asking the disciples, well, who do people say that I am? And the disciples give the same answer as Herod's people. This is who people are saying. And then Jesus looks at them and says, who do you say that I am? This morning, as we talk about this feast that Jesus shares with people in just a moment, the part that we skipped there in verses 10 through 17, here's what I want us to realize, is that in Luke's gospel, the placing of this miracle answers the most important question for each individual, and that is, who is Jesus? He, he brackets it in the front end by Herod saying, who is this guy? And on the back end with Jesus asking his disciples, now who do you say that I am? And the answer to the question comes from what they have just seen in the miracle. Now, it's a question that's still being asked. I mean, television programs talk about Jesus and try to answer the question a lot. I mean, even things like The Simpsons and South Park deal with it. Shows that you wouldn't expect it, like on Dog the Bounty Hunter, where he prays to Jesus almost every show. Roughly 100 films have been made about Jesus, including two of the top grossing movies of all time, The Passion of the Christ, and with a slightly different understanding, The Da Vinci Code. There are... Jesus Wrestling Federations. Wrestling for Jesus, Ultimate Christian Wrestling, Christian Wrestling Foundation. Musically, everyone from rapper Kanye West to The Killers to Green Day to Carrie Underwood to U2 are singing about Jesus. And that's not a new phenomenon. Even uh, pop stars from years ago answered questions about Him. Remember John Lennon saying, right, that were more popular than even Jesus. It's hard to watch a, a, 
sports, if you go home and watch football today, I know the Titans aren't playing, but if you watch other teams, it's hard not to, to see people giving tributes to the Lord or talking about the Lord or the guy upstairs or the, the guy that helped me through this or pointing to the sky. My, my favorite player um, in baseball right now is Albert Pujols. Uh, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but the Cardinals uh, are one win away from the World Series. So, Joe, I don't, y'all know that? Just making sure. All right. Um, ben, did you know that over there, Ben? Ben told me they wouldn't, wouldn't win a game against Philadelphia. So, but Albert Pujols, every time he gets a big hit or he hits a home run, he, he taps his chest and he points to the sky. People and the concept of Jesus is everywhere in our world. People have answered that question different ways for centuries. Some, some liberal people that call themselves Christians would say that Jesus was merely a good man. Jehovah's Witnesses say that he was Michael, the archangel, created a being that became a man. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was not God, but a man who became one of many gods, that he was the half-brother of Lucifer. Unitarian Universalism teaches that Jesus was not God, but rather essentially an incarnation of Mr. Rogers, a great man to be respected solely for his teaching, love, justice, and healing. Deepak Chopra said to Larry King, I see Christ as a state of consciousness we can aspire to. And Scientology, you know, Scientology, right? Says that Jesus is an implant forced upon a thetan about a million years ago. Now, I have no idea what that means. There's even a Canadian nudist arsonist cult. Take a minute to get all that in, all right? That thinks the word Jesus is a biblical code word for hallucinogenic mushrooms that are be eating before lighting things on fire. In major world religions, Jesus is seen as a manifestation of God and a prophet, but not one as highly thought of as others. Buddhism teaches that Jesus was not God, but an enlightened man like Buddha, but not as good as Buddha. Hinduism does not consider him to be the only God, but most likely a wise man of uh, a wise man to teach others about God. Islam teaches that Jesus was merely a man and a prophet who is inferior to Muhammad. The Dalai Lama said that Jesus was either a fully enlightened being or one who aids others in hearing about their spiritual realization. And Mahatma Gami said, I cannot ascribe exclusive divinity to Jesus. He is as divine as Krishna or Rama or Muhammad or Zoroaster. People have been answering the question of who is Jesus for centuries. Thomas Jefferson said that he did not mean to impose on mankind as the Son of God is what Jesus did. Fidel Castro said, I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustain me, the ideas of that symbol, that extraordinary figure of Jesus Christ. Mikhail Gorbachev said that Jesus was the first socialite, I mean socialist. That's a little different. Paris Hilton may say he's the first socialite. Mikhail Gorbachev says he's the first socialist, all right? Martin Luther King Jr. said that Jesus was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. And Herod asked, who is this Jesus? Jesus asked, well, I know what other people say about me, but who do you say that I am? And the answer, which I love about the book of Luke, because everybody I just read is giving some theological description, some wordy detail, some, some, uh, something that they've come up with in their mind. 
And Luke says, you want to know who Jesus is? Let me show you. And it says in verse 10 that when the apostles returned, now this is the apostle been sent out. When they had been sent out to do uh, work, Jesus had commissioned them, said it's your turn to go try some things out. They reported to Jesus all they had done. He took them along and withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. Let me ask you a question. When you withdraw privately, what do you intend to do? Be private. Right? You intend to get away. One of the things I love about Jesus is He teaches us over and over again the importance of sometimes just getting away. But there's a problem. When you're Jesus, people leak where you are. When the crowds found out, they followed Him. And here's Jesus again. He welcomes them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and cured those who need healing. Jesus says, man, we need a break. Let's get away. He gets away. The crowds come. And He says, never mind. I love these people. I want to be with them. So he teaches them about the kingdom of God. He cures those who need healing. You can just see him walking along, taking care of people, teaching them all day. Verse 12. Late in the day, the twelve approached and said to him, Send the crowd away so they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we are in a deserted place here. They say, Listen, Jesus, I know you, I know you love these people. I know you care about them. If you love them, if you care about them, then you're going to have to send them away. Because they don't, we don't have food here. We don't have a place for them to stay. They, they need to go get, get, take care of that themselves. Verse 13, he says, well, you just give them something to eat. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> we don't have any food. I mean, I mean, we've got five loaves and two fish. and <laughs> Unless we go and buy food for all these. But we, I mean, there are 5,000 men here. 5,000 men. That's not counting women and children. Jesus, you don't understand. We can't do it. Jesus told his disciples, have them sit in groups of about 50 each. They did so and had them all sit down. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed it and he broke them and he gave it to them to set before the crowd. Everyone ate and was filled. Then they picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. Luke answers the question, who is this Jesus, by giving us a picture of who he is in this moment. And there are several things we see about Jesus in the midst of this, and there are several angles you can take. You can see the compassion of Jesus. You can see how he cares for the people. You can see that he he was a man who, when everyone else saw problems when it came to people, he saw opportunities. He saw compassion. He saw opportunities for service and love. I mean, you can talk about Jesus and his, his teaching of the disciples of some things and what he was trying to instruct them and the test that he was going to give them. But here's what Luke wants us to get out of this, if we get nothing else. Is that when the question is asked, who is Jesus? The answer that comes is this. He is the anointed one, our only hope today and forever. Now, here's how we get that. First of all, when he's describing what's happening here, he is in some ways flashing back to the Old Testament. All these people were saying things about Jesus. Well, maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's one of the old prophets. And in this story, as Luke tells it, there are a couple of things that would come back to mind for people that were reading and familiar with the Old Testament. 
First of all, there's the, the case of the Israelites in the wilderness. You remember the story of Moses leading the Israelites into the wilderness and they get out there and they are so excited and they can't help but praise God and love God and they never say a bad word, right? Now what happens? They start complaining from the moment they get there. And their biggest complaint comes from, we ain't got anything to eat. Have you ever dealt with a child who is just hungry? And you're not in a place to get them anything to eat. Anybody? Let me just... Listen, I was at Honeysuckle Hill Farm yesterday with my family. I need some support right now, all right? But Daddy, I'm, I'm, I'm starving. I, where, we're going to wait till we get home. Why? They've got food here. Yeah, but their hamburgers are $48. We've got two we cooked last night. They warmed up the microwave. They're free. But I'm so thirsty. I just want some water. Their water bottles are five cent fifty. We got a faucet at home. Anybody ever been there? So you're in the midst of this, and the, the Israelites are like, "We don't have any food. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're gonna die." And what does God do for them? He provides, right? And so every morning they wake up, and what's on the ground? Manna. My favorite thing about that story is the, the word manna literally translates to what is it? So every day they got up and said, hey, what is it for breakfast this morning? And God taught them some important lessons because it was daily bread, right? It was bread that they got every day. If you tried to take two days worth, what happened? It went bad. It was every day. And so when Jesus starts feeding these people, they're going to have images of only place that we know something like this has ever happened was God. In fact, food was much different for them than it is for us. They didn't have Walmarts or Publix or Kroger's. When I leave this church today, on my drive home, if I am in desperate need of food, I, I probably couldn't even count the number of places that I could get food from. Just There's H.G. Hill across the street. There's Dairy Queen down the street. There's the gas station. There's Walgreens. There's uh, Rite Aid. There's the barbecue place. There's the Mexican place, the Hardee's. There's no jack-in-the-box anymore, but McDonald's and Wendy's and Long John Silver and, right, Kroger. And that's just on my drive home, and it takes me eight to ten minutes to get home. They didn't have all that. Food in their culture was something that they thought about all the time. They didn't have three meals and four snacks a day. Because they didn't have access to it. There was never enough. And so, when Jesus gets up and starts handing out food, and it's free, and they got all that they wanted, they thought this is the greatest thing that has ever happened. You know one of the quickest ways to get people to come see you today? Give out free food. Jesus is doing it. And they're like, I mean, it tells us in John's Gospel that they're like, come on, Jesus, you, if you can do this, surely you can take care of the economy in Israel. Surely you can take care of those Roman people. You need to be our king. And the point was made here is this is one that is on par with, equal to, the one that provided manna in the desert. 
The second image that would have been there is from the, the, the life of Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha. And there was this place in Elisha's life when he needed to feed some people and a guy brings him some bread and the guy says, here you go, here's some bread. And he goes, well, give it to everybody. And he says, there's no way that the bread I have will feed the hundred people that are here. And he says, well, go ahead and give it to him. And he says, are you, are you sure this? And he says, give it to him. And when he does, the guy eats and guess what? There, the hundred guys eat and there are leftovers. And so he's telling them that, listen, Jesus, Luke is saying, is the one that will meet your needs today. Whatever they are. Now, for most of us in this room, where we're going to get our next meal is not a major concern. Now, you may be thinking about it. You may look forward to it. But very few of us in this room have real days of, I have no idea where my next meal is coming from. And so for us, give us this day our daily bread may not be a big prayer of faith. But we all have needs in our lives that have to be filled. Emotional, physical, spiritual. What is being taught here in this meal is that Jesus is the one that is providing that hope for us today. Here's the third thing from the Old Testament that's kind of envisioned here, and it reminds us of something in the future. This would have brought back to the memory a passage. You don't have to to turn there, but you can write it down. Isaiah chapter 25. In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, it says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a feast for all the peoples on this mountain, a feast of aged wine, choice meat, finely aged wine. On this mountain He will destroy the burial shroud, or He will destroy death, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord will wipe away tears from every face and remove His people's disgrace from the old earth, for the Lord has spoken." On that day it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for Him and He has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. What he's hearkening back to is this picture that God, when He comes, will prepare a banquet for His people. He will feed them with food they do not have. And it will be a signal that He has come to destroy death and that He has come to provide life and that He is our Savior. The point of the feeding of the 5,000 is not just to, oh, wow, look what Jesus did. The point of the feeding of the 5,000 is declaring in this midst that Jesus is the Anointed One one, the Messiah, the Christ, the one sent from God who will bring salvation and wholeness to the people who follow him. And just in case we miss understand that Luke ties this to his salvation, there, there's a little line in here that ought to sound pretty similar. Verse 16 of chapter 9. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it unto them. Does that sound familiar? What does it sound like? Last Supper, right? Luke wrote those words in the Last Supper. And what he's saying here is this is a foreshadowing of the bread of life being broken 
for you. You know the most frustrating thing about a really great meal is that pretty soon it's gone. And guess what? I ate at the Apple Barn till I was satisfied on Wednesday afternoon. And by Wednesday night, my stomach was growling. Here's what is being foreshadowed here. It's that there will come a moment when Jesus, not physically yet, as the bread of life will be broken and given out to us. And that in that, we can find hope and satisfaction, not only today, but forever. Now just in case, we didn't get all that. Verse 19, Jesus says, or they answer him, John the Baptist, Elijah, and others. And he says, but you, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's anointed one. God's Messiah. And here's the thing I'm going to leave you with, and we're not going to expound on a lot because it doesn't need a lot of explanation. He strictly warned them and instructed them to tell no one this in verse 21, saying, The Son of Man must suffer things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, be raised on the third day. Verse 23. And then he lets them know this. If Jesus is the anointed one, our only hope today and forever, then our only response is complete devotion. Verse 23, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What is a man benefited if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits his soul? Over the last uh, few weeks or a few days, the world has talked a lot about a man who seemed to have gained the whole world. It's a guy who took a company that was on the verge of bankruptcy and built it into the most profitable uh, company in the world. It took a company that was fading into obscurity and in about 15 years turned it into the most recognized logo in the world. A guy named Steve Jobs who died recently after his battle with cancer had ended. And the world has come to talk about the greatness of Steve Jobs. And he was a great inventor. He was a great businessman. I mean, I, I am a guy that, that uses a, an Apple computer and an Apple phone. And so I like his products. But the thing that bothered me in the death of Steve Jobs is that everything you read about him suggest that he didn't come close to understanding the right answer to the question, who is Jesus? Now, we can hope and pray, and God is his judge. I am not, that at some point in the latter years of his life, as he faced this cancer, he found that moment. But I had just finished reading an article about him when I went to read a passage from this week's sermon. 
And when it's said, what does it gain a man to get the whole world and it lose your soul? I couldn't help but make a connection. And here's the question that I have for you, because most of you in this room, you're not here unless you are at least close to the right track of Jesus, the answer to that question. Most of you have made the right answer and you've accepted the Lord and you're a follower of Jesus. But here's my question. What does it matter if we lose everything if we've got Him? Jesus said to His disciples, All right, you say that I am the Messiah because I just fed 5,000 men. So my question is, do you believe it enough to follow me with everything you are? See, it's easy to speak who Jesus is. It's harder to live it out every day.